Hi, I'm Stephen Cap Perry, host of In Good Faith. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We love our listeners. We love hearing from you, interacting, and we especially love to meet you in person. The In Good Faith production team will be at the upcoming Faith Matters Restore Gathering, October 13th and 14th at the Mountain America Exposition Center in Sandy, Utah. And we'd love the chance to connect with you in person. Go to faithmatters.org restore to learn more. And for a 20% discount on tickets, use the promo code BYU Radio. See you there. We're listening to children singing a popular song about Eid here in the Suleymaniyah Mosque in Istanbul. We believe that all faith traditions have something to teach us about how God is working in the world and in our lives. So we're exploring Turkey, where Judaism, Christianity, and Islam meet, all in hopes of seeing how the world of faith we live in today came to be, and hopefully understand each other and even God better for having spent time to listen, learn, and be amazed. Let's explore the crossroads of faith. This is episode six of our special 10-episode series on Turkey as a crossroads of faith. In this episode, we're excited to explore Islam in Turkey, a country that's now 97% Muslim, but for over a millennium was predominantly Christian. We'll talk about how that transition took place well into the rule of the Ottomans with Professor Christine Isam Farharan, and we'll meet a former imam, Jamil Usta, who founded an after-school program to teach girls the Quran. But first, let's return to the Suleymaniyah Mosque, where I speak with some of the families celebrating Eid in this historic locale. We're standing outside one of the most important mosques in Istanbul, the Suleymaniyah Mosque. We left our hotel fairly early this morning and drove through the cobbled streets of historic Istanbul to what's known as the Third Hill, overlooking the Bosphorus. Then we parked, climbed the hill past Istanbul University, and into the outer courtyard of the mosque. The mosque is spectacular. The grounds have flower beds and the mausoleum of Suleiman the Magnificent and his wife. That's why we call it the Suleymaniye Mosque. It has four minarets and a huge dome that rises 174 feet into the air. But other smaller domes support the larger dome. As I enter the courtyard, my eyes are drawn to the row of arches over the enormous entrance to the interior. We set up our gear in the courtyard where a local TV crew is also recording and a quartet of string instruments play. Women and children gather as men rush inside, some of them holding prayer rugs. This is the very last day of Ramadan. It's Eid Bayrambar, which is a big celebration. They've done a whole month of fasting which celebrates the month in which the Prophet Muhammad actually received the first verses of the Holy Quran back in the early 600, 609. And so this particular mosque right here in Istanbul, built in the 1500s, is a very special place to come and have prayer for Eid. Now, today and the next day, there's going to be feasting, there's people seeing each other, visiting each other. In fact, the service is over, the prayer, but the Imam is saying, let every day be Eid uh, Bayrambar, you know, have that brotherhood. And he's even saying, you should stick around for a while and just enjoy the spirit of being here. And you can see people here greeting each other, giving the traditional two kisses, on, one on each side. And this particular mosque, the Suleiman the Magnificent, was the Sultan back in the 1500s, the height of the Ottoman Empire, and this built in the 1500s is dedicated to him and his legacy, so they remember that legacy. At the very end of the prayer, they're saying, Allahu Akbar, God is one, God is great. And at the very end, the Imam says that, and then all of the men join in, and you hear this low rumble, just thousands of people all saying, God is great together. It's actually quite moving, and you feel like, well, amen. Oh, my 
definitely something I can, I can feel like we're brothers with, brothers and sisters. So, Rami, it's good to meet your son, Wufa, and your beautiful daughter. Tell me about Eid and the Rambar, the coming together on this last day of Eid. It, why is that important? Yes, because all the Muslims are celebrating after uh, the fasting in Ramadan. Uh, all, all the Muslims uh, go to the prayer at the morning. All the family members are gathering together and visiting each other in their homes and uh, either in the mosques. So it's some kind of thirst and celebration after the long fasting and mm -hmm. praying and uh, praying for other nights, you know. So this is why the Eid is important. And it's also very important for the kids that they are join, enjoying the Eid and the celebration, the games and everything. Uh -huh. You bring your whole family every year? Yeah, yeah. Good, and I, I hope you enjoy the day and you have family celebrations coming up. Inshallah, thank you very much. Oh good, thank a pleasure. You. Thank you, Rami. Nice you. Thank you, Wufa. Thank you. One of the best things I think is just seeing everybody coming as families. And I hadn't really understood. I knew that at your individual house you would have your iftar at the end of the day for this whole month. But this is a time when even, even groups of friends have all come here together and they're having their pictures taken. And it's just really a, a great celebration. Nihal Burtek is one of several women who've brought bouquets of flowers and bags of candy to hand out to the other women and children at the Eid celebrations. Nihal, thank you for this. This is candy, and it says, I, I wish you a good Eid. Yeah, Eid Mubarak, actually. Eid Mubarak. Yeah, uh -huh. And so is this a tradition that you pass things out like this to family or to friends? Uh, yes, actually, my elder son is nine years old. When he was at the age of three, we just came for the Eid, and we bring candies for the kids. I have a social organization. Mm -hmm. It's Milim Milim Anlar. I bring the kids, make a group, and we have small trips in Istanbul or other places in the Turkey. Mm -hmm. Are you here with your whole family? Yeah. Actually, my whole family and my whole friends. All, everyone yeah. all together? I, uh, no, yeah. We are all together. Right so do you like to come to this particular mosque? Yes. Each year? This, this what, is, what is special about this? Uh, there are some poets, they write some poetry about the Eight in Suleymaniye. Mm. There's a special mosque, and this is also a symbol for Istanbul, the mosque itself. Yeah. And we call Suleymaniye the Bayram Namaz. There's a poetry like oh, this. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. What do you feel here? Do you feel closer to God when you, you come and you meet together and do this together? Of course, and also I feel my you know, roots here. Mm. I am also an architect. The Mimar Sinan is a very famous one in the yes. world, you know. And this is a very special aura here. Whenever I came to the Suleymaniye, I feel so peaceful. Oh, that's you know? nice. It's all, it's all about religious and all about my roots. What's your name? Hafize. Hafize, a pleasure. Good nice to meet you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So when you come to an event like this to celebrate the holiday, does that make you feel closer to God? Do you feel something special? Of course. Of course. Like you, yes. if you believe in God. I, I, God is I, the only one. I feel the same. So that's why it is the most important to pick up the people mm -hmm. all around the world, I believe. Mm. No separation. I believe that. Mm -hmm. There is no difference between human beings. Just people separate themselves by religion, by nationalism, by something, some dab, dab, dab. You can blah, blah, blah. I believe that it is the most important to feel yourself comfortable mm -hmm. in this life. And we're all one under God. Yeah. Completely, you are right. For example, when I meet you mm -hmm. here, I say that you are welcome. Yes. Why? I have no prayer idea about, no. For example, when I meet you, hello, you are welcome. Merhaba, that's, Merhaba. What, that's what you it's, said. It's not important. It is the most important to connect the people. Yes. Good communication, that's enough. So you, you understand what I mean now? Oh, yes, yes, that's enough. Good. Simple. Thank simple. you so much, I appreciate that. <laughs> That's, you're that's, welcome. That's beautiful. Thank you're you. You're welcome. And, and so, good, nice so good to Thank meet you. Thank you very much. Thank nice you. Nice to meet you.
Hello to United States. <laughs> Today I speak with Dr. Christine Isomferharen about the Ottomans in Turkey. You might remember Christine from our last episode about the Hagia Sophia, where she discussed the current status of the Hagia Sophia as a mosque. Christine has a PhD in Ottoman history from the University of Chicago and is the author most recently of The Sultan's Fleet, Seafarers of the Ottoman Empire. I asked Christine about the beginnings of the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottomans were a Turkish dynasty, but they weren't the first Turkish dynasty. That was the Seljuks who came Mm -hmm. in 1071 after the Battle of Manzikert where a group of Seljuks defeated the Byzantines. And that's the first time we ever have Turks in Turkey. And so there was such a mass migration that in like 200 years, the name had changed to Turkey of this area of the world. So the Ottomans began in 1300. They were one among several principalities. And they just started expanding and taking over both Byzantine territory and the territory of their Turkish rivals. And so when they began, a lot of their territory was really predominantly Christian, probably until the reign of Selim I, who reigned from 1512 to 1520, the majority population of the Ottoman Empire was Christian rather than Muslim. And did they coexist? Yes, they coexisted. And There's this idea that the Ottomans were very motivated by religion at the beginning, but their early armies contained Christians as well as Muslims. So this idea that they were really warriors for the faith is a little anachronistic. It's an idea that later historians decided they wanted to use on the earlier rulers. And so exactly what the motivation was, we don't really have good sources for that period. So we don't know exactly, except for the Ottomans seem to be very appealing to attracting various groups to rule under them. And they really were quite tolerant. That varies from time to time, but because there was a large Christian population for a long time, more than the majority, they included Christians into their administration. And later they demand that those people convert, but it often is a very superficial conversion. Mm. It's so interesting to see when cultures come together, when faiths sort of overlap each other in a particular territory. There is that, we like to call it a golden age, meaning we all got along perfectly, which probably never happened getting along perfectly. But then there is this contrast when, as you mentioned, sort of a forced conversion. It's a forced conversion of people who are going to work in the administration, Ah, not ah. a forced conversion of the majority of the population. So So we're talking about a few thousands of people mm. who are particularly associated with the state. So if you want to get ahead, maybe. Right. So it's part of your political identity to convert. Mm. So there's a Frenchman in the early 18th century who eventually ends up in the Ottoman Empire, and he converts, but in public he has a beard and he wears Ottoman dress, and at home he has a wine cellar and he wears French clothes. But it's part of his political identity to be a Muslim. And so there is never this mass conversions of the population at large. It's particular people who are associated with the state as part of their political identity to be Muslim. So going from a majority Christian nation under what remained of the Byzantines, can you talk to us about how Islam became the majority religion? Well, that's pretty complicated. It takes a very long time. The Ottomans rule a lot of territory. Eventually, they rule Hungary, the Balkans, all around the Black Sea, all of the Middle East, basically, except for Iran, all of North Africa, except for Morocco. And so it's this huge, varied empire that's connected just with the dynasty. And so the religions in the various provinces of the empire really vary. So some areas that have large Greek populations, it's, it's hard to know when that actually becomes Muslim. After World War I, as a result of the rise of nationalism, we have population exchange between Turkey and Greece, where a huge number of 
Greek-speaking Turks <laughs> come to Turkey and Turkish-speaking Greeks go to Greece. Basically, that's based on religion. And so clear into the 20th century, you have fairly large Christian populations in Turkey. And was that by choice or was that an enforced thing to have people of, of different religions actually just change countries? It was enforced. Mm. And it was done with the leadership of Ataturk, who founds the Republic of Turkey, and whoever the Greek premier was at that point. And they both get the Nobel for this because they see it as a way of solving a lot of ethnic unrest within these territories by mm. homogenizing the territories. So we might look at it as, I can't believe, you know, people yeah, are being yeah. forced out of their homes to go to some place that supposedly they have a connection with, but they really don't. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the difference between a majority religion and a theocracy and how that worked in Turkey. So I, I don't really see the Ottoman Empire as a theocracy. Mm -hmm. I see it more as like European rulers who claim a divine right of kings. You know, mm -hmm. it's like I am ruling with the favor of God, but not with the idea that I'm actually a religious leader. So I would say that this changes at the very, very end of the empire with a sultan called Abdul Hamid II, who is reacting to the imperialism of Britain and France, who have taken a lot, in fact, of his territories, things mm. like Egypt, Algeria, Algeria <laughs> Tunisia, Cyprus, uh, for example. And this is when he starts playing the caliph card. Now, the Ottomans had a lot of titles, as did everybody else, you know, just this long string of titles, and caliph was in there. But it didn't really have a religious significance. But Abdul Hamid II sees it as an opportunity to actually be able to fight back against the Britain and the French because they have large Muslim populations in their imperial territories. For example, there's huge Muslim population in India. And so Abdul Hamid II starts promoting an ideology of pan-Islam. We're all Muslims together, and I'm the caliph, and I'm, I'm the head of all Muslims in the world. As kind of a, a possible of, you better, you know, be careful, Britain and France, or I might try and make all of your Muslim subjects rebel against you. Mm. But that is, that's really exceptional and really has to do with this particular political circumstance. Before that, the Ottoman rulers definitely saw themselves as promoting Islam in their territories in the sense that Islamic law was one of the law codes that people followed, but people who were Jewish could follow Jewish law. People who were Christians could follow Christian law. And so there were judges who were experts in Islamic law who were trained in institutions that were basically funded by the state and who were paid by the state and who administered this Islamic law. It's maybe not theocracy, but it definitely could be like a state religion could be put in place. Yes. And definitely Muslims were the preferred religious group. I mean, there were disadvantages that Christians and Jews had. They had to pay higher taxes. Of course, they were not then part of the military. So it, it kind of went both ways at various times, whether people thought this was a problem or not. One of the places in Europe that had a large Jewish population was Salonika, known as Thessaloniki in Greece. And when the Jews were forced out of Spain in 1492, many of them went and settled in this particular city. And so it had a very large population of Jews because there was a lot of tolerance there. And in fact, the Jewish population there survived until World War II. 
when mm. the Greek government allowed them to be sent to the concentration camps. In modern Turkey, do you still see evidence or leftovers or influence from this Ottoman Empire we're talking about? Yes, absolutely. The buildings, the mosques are, most of the magnificent ones were built during the Ottoman period. There's also Ottoman palaces that are around and about. Ataturk very much promoted Turkish nationalism, so in a way he wanted to get away from this cosmopolitan, multinational ideal of the Ottoman Empire because it just didn't fit with the early 20th century where the the ideology was nationalism. Mm. And this idea of a multinational empire was seen as obsolete. But it's still really very much profound that Turkey is one of the successor states of the Ottoman Empire and probably the foremost one in the sense that it's the one where people speak Turkish and the Turkish identity is, is really important. For the most part, the Ottoman influence is really a positive thing in, in modern Turkey. This idea of tolerance, lots of different groups, interconnections, people traveling to this area from all over the Mediterranean world and contributing to it. Our sister podcast, Constant Wonder, also covered a similar story from the Jewish diaspora. They've got this lovely episode about Stella Levy, who turned 100 years old this year. She grew up on the island of Rhodes in Greece in a community of Sephardic Jews, and they'd lived there for over 500 years. Her community was occupied by Italy and then Germany in World War II, and finally the entire community was deported to Auschwitz, she is one of the few survivors. Decades later, Stella Levy met Michael Frank, a writer living in New York City in the chance encounter. And in this episode of Constant Wonder, he tells the story of their friendship, Stella Levy's incredible life, and the lost Jewish community of Rhodes. That's Season 5, Episode 4 of Constant Wonder, The Search for a Lost Jewish Community. Once the worshipers have left Sulaymaniyah Mosque, we have a chance to enter. We doff our shoes at the entrance and then walk across red carpet patterned with arches to the center of the Great Hall, which is dissected by a low railing. We're not allowed past that, but we can still appreciate the grand beauty of the mosque. Above us are hundreds of gorgeous tiles. The highest point of the dome is decorated with golden Arabic calligraphy against a turquoise backdrop. Each of the domes have similar designs. The rest of the ceiling is tiled with red or ivory or black tiles in geometric shapes. Huge round light fixtures in brass hang above our heads, providing brightly lit lamps and emphasizing the vastness of the space. This building is designed to make you look up. And I think that's on purpose, not just that it's big, but that you have to look up. And I look up and it draws my thoughts. And so it's a place that's made to inspire. And this is not my particular faith tradition, but I do believe in God. I do believe in the oneness of humanity. And it's, it's really a beautiful place to be. I'm really honored that they would permit us to come in and be able to experience this. It means a lot to me. I come in here and I think of the dedication and the time it takes, and you just know the hours, and in this case, 50 years to build this building, roughly 50 years. I'm kind of overwhelmed with the people who maybe started building it and didn't even live to see it finished, but they knew that it was going to be important for generations, and here we are 500 years later, and it's still moving to me. And that's the long view. And so a building like this was made to last for generations, to bless people. And the people who started it didn't always live to see it be finished. And so when you walk in here, I have a feeling of commitment that inspires me to think about my own faith, how I observe that, how I share that. I love that I can come to somebody else's tradition and be inspired by it. 
we're greeted by a few young mothers who are showing their children the mosque. Beautiful. Welcome, and are you a tourist? <laughs> are you a tourist? Well, we're here visiting to talk about the country of Turkey and people of faith oh, really? in Welcome different in. cities. Join, join us. Thank Please. You. Thank yeah, you. <laughs> so, how old do children need to be before they before they fast? Well, like you can start at any age, like start like practicing it. So you it. maybe you fast just a little bit yeah, at like, first. Like, like don't eat breakfast and, and then until lunch you don't eat anything, and then at lunch you eat it. So like you get used to it, and then later on when you grow up, at like thirteen, I think you you start fasting. Like, and how old are you? I'm ten. Okay, so you've got a couple of years. Yeah. And what is it that brings you uh, for Eid? You all come together. Is that traditional that you all do this as friends, as family? As... Yeah, yeah, we do it with the friends and the family. And the whole Muslims actually do that. Mm. As you know, like one fourth of the world is approximately Muslim. And this is a tradition you can't find anywhere. It's just, uh, yeah, just everybody, everybody comes together. But also in the US, there's, there are mosques, there are plenty of Muslims over there. But they also celebrate it too. You can't yes. After the mosque, we will uh, go for uh, our family's mm -hmm. house, or other family's house, like my mom's. Like elderly. We went to their mom's oh. and oh. grandma's. And we have a very special breakfast. All <laughs> nice. Oh, very good. Do you have a favorite food for iftar during Ramadan? Pasturma. Yeah, pasturma. Like, like something called <laughs> pasturma, which is like... It's a cake? No, it's like... Uh, like bacon. meat, oh. like, like bacon, but like not bacon. Oh yeah, not bacon. Yeah. <laughs> and then you put it in like this bread, like a sandwich, yeah. and the bread is called pide. It's like very famous, it's very squishy, it's like amazing, you should try it. I would be happy to try it. You should try it. Thank you very much. In our travels through Cappadocia, we had a chance to visit with former Imam Jamal Usta. Usta is a term of respect, meaning teacher or master. In Turkey, Imams are appointed by the government, and Jamal Usta has since retired from that position and opened an after-school program for girls to learn and even memorize the Quran in Arabic. Memorizing the Quran, we found out, was a practice that many faithful believers engage in and Jamal Usta's efforts to educate girls in this way is seen as an important contribution to the community. Jamal Usta welcomed us to the school one afternoon. He was dressed in a gray suit with a white tunic in place of the dress shirt we might have expected a Westerner to wear. He also wore the traditional white cap called the takia. He smiled in welcome, and after I took off my shoes, he gave me a tour of the building. I got to peek into classrooms where the students were learning their verses. Then we settled down to talk about what motivates him and his experience as an imam. Our conversation was aided by our guide Lutfi serving as a translator, and we later had the imam's interview translated into English. So you'll hear an actor read Jamal Usta's responses. But first we'll hear Jamal Usta recite from the Quran himself. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ما قدر الله حق قدره in the explanation, Allah the Almighty says in the first verse that no one can truly comprehend Allah. No one's mind or knowledge is sufficient to understand his power and magnificence. Zia Pasha says in his poem, this tiny mind is not required to comprehend high ideas, for its scale cannot bear such a weight. It means that the mind cannot describe the power and magnificence of Allah properly. That's the first verse. Next, Allah is the all-knowing of the past and the future. There's no limit to Allah's knowledge. Allah does not learn anything afterward. His divine attribute of knowledge is self-existent. Next, Allah the Almighty chooses certain professions, certain things from among the people. 
Allah chooses prophets from among the people. And among the angels, Gabriel, Michael, Israfil, Azrael, they are chosen by Allah the Almighty. In the following verse, it says, Bow down, prostrate, worship Allah, and attain salvation. And finally says, He is the best of companions, the best of helpers. For example, a person commits different sins. The moment they recite the testimony of faith, shahada, Allah does not question them about the past. He will not say, you have done this, you have done that. Reciting the word shahada will erase one's entire past. In Islamic faith, every human being is born on the nature of Islam. When Allah first created the souls of human beings, this is mentioned in the verse. He said, Am I not your Lord? And they all acknowledged Allah. For this reason, every person is born on the nature of Islam. If a person dies before reaching the age of responsibility, they will also go to paradise. This is our creed and knowledge. But ultimately, a man is born on the nature of Islam. Then he lives as a Jew, as a Christian, and dies as a Muslim. Allah will no longer ask about his past. Allah accepts him as true righteous servants and admits them to paradise. A person lives as a Muslim, dies as a kafir, disbeliever, and goes to hell. That's why we shouldn't judge people. We shouldn't belittle them. We should not claim negatively about a person because you never know what tomorrow will bring, how tomorrow will be. You never know how a Muslim will die, how they will live. But because we don't know, we have to be respectful of everyone. We have to be decent. And we should not look down on people with such arrogance. As I said before, we forgive the created one for the sake of the Creator. Allah the Almighty has given us eyes, ears, and this body. He created it and gave it to everyone. This is a blessing from Allah. And Allah also expects something in return from us. He says, know me. Think about all that we eat, all that we drink, the digestion of them. Anything we put on our mouths provides whatever our body needs. What kind of machine is this? Our heart, our brain, our kidneys, our lungs. Such divine power, such artistry. We should also recognize the owner of this. Hojam, how long have you been an imam? I served as an imam. My father was a hafiz. He was also an imam. So was my grandfather. My grandfather had told my father, raise my child as a hafiz, one who memorizes and recites the Quran from memory. My father made me study. He educated me on the Quran and raised me as a hafiz. Then he sent me to Nefshahir. He told me to benefit from the respected scholars there. There are beautiful scholars here. So I joined them. I came here around 1970 and stayed here. I served as an imam for 26 years. I delivered sermons in mosques. We had Osman Hoja here, who used to give sermons. He taught us Arabic, the Quran, and Fiqh, Islamic law. That's why now I go to Germany and other places. There are different sects, malicious sects, misrepresenting Muslims and misrepresenting Islam to others. They're spreading hatred towards Islam and religion. There are people named Ahmed, Muhammad, who call themselves Islamic, but they distort Islam. But I go to them. I explain to them the positive aspects, what is necessary. And I tell them not to disrupt their courtesy and manners towards the local people and others, to represent Islam and its etiquette, to live and exemplify the beautiful character of our Prophet, peace be upon him, who never let go of mercy in all matters, whether it's family, trade, or human relations. That's why we go there, to reflect these values. My life has been spent with the Quran and Fiqh. Fiqh is the discipline that teaches us good, evil, what is forbidden, and what is permissible. Today, many people have studied theology, but they are misleading people, providing them with false information and showing Islam in a wrong light. They prioritize their personal opinions above everything else. I visit Germany every two months. They have invited me on the third of next month, and I am going again. We will go to Frankfurt, 
who will visit our brothers there and deliver sermons in mosques. Alhamdulillah, thank God, there are still preaching in mosques here on Fridays. Currently, the preaching and guidance activities are ongoing and will continue until the end. Our human relationships and our concerns for things will continue until we pass away. There is no breaking of a tree. The matter extends to any living creature that walks on a path. Mercy is necessary for them as well, whether it's for that creature or for the tree. Everyone deserves mercy. This is true humanity. This is true beauty. Therefore, it is our responsibility to be of benefit to these people, to embrace them, to tell them about the wrongs they have been taught, to tell them that they are doing wrong. And I would like to thank you very much for your interest in doing this research. When you do research, you discover many beauties. Maybe you would never imagine these places and how we behave here, but we are very happy to meet you. Thank you. We would welcome you again if you come back at another time. These places are open to all of us. What made you decide, after years of service as an imam, to put together a school and to run a school to teach girls the Quran. Well, our Prophet, peace be unto him, did not have weekends or holidays in his life. He never fell short of serving humanity. We also want to follow the same path. Why is it important that the girls also learn the Quran as well as the boys? Mothers are essential to the peace, well-being, and future of society. A mother is the best manager, guardian, and guide for both the man, the family, and the child. A father cannot be as influential in the family as a mother. For that reason, we need to protect the mothers, the women. They set an example for the people around them, wherever they go. They can also warn people of wrongdoing. Just as men are responsible for reaching out to people and turning them away from wrongdoing, women have the same responsibility as well. They will be a lifelong benefit to their communities and families. How long does it take to learn? We have seven and eight-year-old children here now. They come here from school. Some young children were able to memorize the Quran in seven months here. For example, we have a kindergarten here called Ana Yure, right across the street. Those little children, they recited the Quran by looking at it, and they read it from beginning to end. What difference does it make spiritually that you now have your holy scriptures not just on a page, but in your heart? Man is made of both soul and body, a composite being of both. For example, Allah says in the Quran that He breathed into Adam from His Spirit. The body of man is nourished by eating, drinking, and sleeping. On the other hand, the soul of man is nourished and satisfied not by eating and drinking, but by reading the Quran and remembering Allah. When you read the Quran a lot, your soul will attain fulfillment. Have you felt guided by Allah? in the work that you do, that you've been led to particular places or to do particular work? The Quran says, we are the one who established you on earth. Women, men, professions, poverty, wealth, man's life on earth, how they will be born, where they will die, how they will die, all these things have been determined by Allah. I read in the newspapers about churches being empty in Europe and churches being empty in the U.S. Do you see that happening in mosques as well? Yes, partly in Turkey too. The youth is the same here and in Europe. I see the same thing there. I find today's youth a bit depressed. I mean, they want freedom, they want to live, but they don't bring anything to life. There is a problem with today's youth. I think we, whether in Europe or Turkey, are not able to educate them well enough. I believe there's a lack of education, both in Europe and here. You're listening to In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith 
To me, you seem very happy, and I see a light in your eyes, and I'm wondering what gives you joy in your service as imam or running the school? What is it that brings you joy? Serving people gives you peace. And at the end of the day, the more you serve people, the more you advise them, the more you tell them the truth, the more you tell them the facts, they are constantly renewed and they enjoy what they do and they don't get disenchanted with their profession. I mean, you have to make them understand the true purpose. You should not be complaining. You have to be determined. I mean, you have to make an effort to perform well. Things like frustration, laziness, negligence, indifference are unbecoming not only for me, but for anybody. When we read about the history of Hagia Sophia, or the Blue Mosque, when they were built, they also had a complex where they were feeding the poor, whether they were Christian, whether they were Jewish, whether they were Muslim. Do you still see interfaith cooperation today like that, serving people no matter their faith? This is being done in many places. For example, in Aziz Mahmoud Hudai, they are currently serving food to 1,500 people there. This tradition is still maintained in our country as a social complex. But there are several things brought by the system. They open schools, universities. They serve food there. It seems like the system is working a bit wrong in our country. The old spirit is not there. We cannot see the old spirit. When you think of the idea of a secular state as Turkey has been, but many other uh, Muslim countries are not, are there benefits to, even though it's a majority Islamic society, to still being a secular state? Secularism in Turkey, Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia, and in some Islamic countries, people are being trapped by such different ideologies. I mean, Islam is not being practiced in the real sense. When they say that they want to live up to European values, they are neither living up to Europe nor living up to Islam. Our country is doing it wrong. Islamic countries are doing it wrong. They neither live their original religion nor conform to others. This secularism exists as an authority over Turkey. This is the case in Saudi Arabia as well. Their regime is just like the secularism in our country. They said, let's conform to Europe, but they failed to do so. They said, let's live by Islam. They failed to do so. Islamic countries today are in such a confused state. What do you wish people in the United States knew about Islam here in Turkey? Well, the basic thing for us is to follow the Quran and Sunnah. And the Quran has a description of that. How Islamic life should be, how human behavior should be, whether it is in shopping, in trade, in family relations, these are all outlined in the Quran. Our Prophet, peace be upon him, also lived and set an example. Everyone, whether in Turkey, America, France, or Europe, is obliged to live in accordance with the teachings of the Quran and the Sunnah. That way, they will not only feel at peace, but they will also avoid harming their surroundings. So, a Muslim in America or anywhere else must do what the Quran and Sunnah say. Then both the owner of the house and the people around them will be at peace. No one will ever be harmed by them. Our Prophet, peace be upon him, says, the Muslim is the one from whose tongue and hand the people are safe. When people come to you, when you were working as an imam, and they seek wisdom about how to make choices, or they, they want to seek wisdom from God, how do you advise them to receive direction? It is our duty to ensure that they become useful to themselves, their environment, and their family. 
That's how we guide them. It's up to them whether they follow our words or not. We guide them in that direction so that they will be beneficial to their community, to humanity, to everything. That's what we always said in the past. Today, I continue to do the same. We've just finished Ramadan and Eid. You have fasted over a lifetime for Ramadan. What does that mean to you, that month of Ramadan? Allah says in the Quran, fasting is prescribed for you as it was prescribed for those before you. Not only in Islam, but in all past religions, including Judaism, Christianity, all of them practice fasting. Fasting not only enhances a person spiritually, but also provides physical well-being. Is it more difficult as you get older, or is it easier? Your body feels rested. One of the questions that is asked in every faith, even if people don't believe in a God, they wonder, why do bad things happen to good people who are trying their best? What is the answer from Islam and from the Quran? A person gets sick so that they can appreciate the sick. Sometimes one becomes rich and sometimes poor so that they can appreciate the poor and the rich. I mean, one experiences different things and states of life so that they can appreciate others. Prophet Joseph did not feed himself much for fear that he would not realize the plight of the poor. It is all a means of testing people. These things play a role in making people recognize others around them. And is that the same when you're fasting during Ramadan, you have sympathy for people who are without food the whole year? Absolutely. We're both grandfathers. What do you hope for those grandchildren in today's world? We want them to grow up in a good way, in a proper way and be useful to society, like a tree, and bear fruit like a tree. I'm sitting here with senior producer Heather Bigley, and Heather, I'm wondering, what stuck with you over this period of months since that interview with the imam? Well, I love how that interview ends, which is the imam talking about how he wants his grandchildren to grow up like trees, right? Beautiful, strong, reaching out, providing shade, providing a roost for, you know, birds. Like, there's just so much of that that works. Um, and, And I thought to myself, what a wonderful, wonderful ambition for your grandchildren, right? It's not, oh, I want them to, you know, grow up and be rich. I want them to be useful and to themselves and to the community. The trees are so life-giving to us in many ways. I can't help also but think of the roots of a tree that that we don't see, just as in the future we won't see him when he's gone, but his grandchildren will have come from those roots. He's also passing on something interesting to the girls who come to the school. This whole idea of actually memorizing the Quran, I mean, that's not like something that you you pass off a, a surah or a chapter and right. then never look at it again. This is like memorizing your entire book of Holy Scripture. Right. And at any moment that you would be able to call it up and to say it uh, is pretty impressive to me. Um, I can't imagine doing that with our books of Scripture. Yeah. <laughs> I think you asked this really beautiful question. Um, the importance of memorization actually is to have that ingrained in your heart at some point, right? To say it over and over again makes it become part of who you are. What's really interesting, though, is that these young girls are not learning the Quran in Turkish. This is a huge sacrifice <laughs> that I had never understood. Right. When someone who does not speak Arabic decides to memorize the Quran, they are learning it, memorizing it in Arabic, which is, according to the tradition, the language that the angel delivered the words to the Prophet Muhammad in. And so 
Imagine learning your entire book of scripture by heart so you could recite it in a language you do not even speak. Yeah. We'll be speaking with Zeki, one of our guides, uh, later in the series, and he is someone who memorized the Quran. Mm. And in fact, it was sort of how he was introduced to us as he's a great guide. Also, he can recite the entire Quran. Um, And he was quite proud of it. Uh, so it was something he, as a man and father in his 30s, was carrying around with him and still could do. And again, I I can't imagine wh- how, what kind of brain power that would take uh, and what kind of humility as well. I found it interesting to speak to a Muslim who was talking about Islam as it's practiced in other countries. Yeah, as Westerners or just as people, we look at other religions and we think of them as monoliths, right? Everyone believes the same thing over there and they all agree about that. And yeah. there's, you If know, you're Baptist, you think this right. automatically. Yeah. If, if you're Muslim, this. Yeah, and here we have an imam or former imam who quite frankly seemed to be experiencing some sorrow over what he was seeing in Islam. And I wouldn't say that it's very different from actually how Christians feel when they look around and they see how other Christians are practicing and, and, and the real concern, right, that this isn't the right way to do things. But as, as almost always, I walked out of that interview, we had our arms around each other. Yeah. And, and that, that wasn't something that I reached out or he reached out. We, it just sort of was how it was. I think we just found someone who was sort of a kindred spirit in wanting good in the world and someone who really inspired me. So uh, I left feeling like somewhere in that little town off in Turkey, (laughs) I have this friend and someone I really admire what they do. Be sure and check out the In Good Faith YouTube channel for videos on location at the Suleymaniye Mosque. And next week, we'll visit the tomb of 13th century mystic and poet Rumi in Konya. Many thanks to Christine Isom for Haran and Jamal Usta for speaking with us. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team also includes Emma Engebretson, Leah King, Katarina Martinich, and Ashton Rowan. Our sound designers include Daniel Phillips, Joshua Fouts, and Carly Wilson. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you like In Good Faith, why not leave a five-star comment or review on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple, wherever you get your podcasts, and help spread the word. Find us on Twitter at In Good Faith Pod and on Instagram and Facebook at In Good Faith Podcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join me again soon, right here in good faith.